Um, as I'm sure you've already noticed, I'm an extremely emotional person, and I'm sharing about an extremely emotional topic, so I'm going to require a lot of grace <laughs> as I work through this. Um, but one thing that I do want to share on the front end is that even though this is a very emotional topic, and it's very emotional for a lot of people, um, talking about um, children, um, families that are hurting, kids that have been um, deeply affected by, by trauma or neglect, things like that are very emotional. And even though this is an emotional topic, one thing that I think we need to guard our hearts on is having an emotional response. I think that we shouldn't all be running out to become foster or adoptive parents today, um, but... I think one thing that we need to um, look for is that God has something for every single one of us in this journey. Um, so being attuned to what God is speaking to you, even in the midst of such an emotional topic. Um, so I'm Keith Fortier. Um, me and my wife, Tanya, um, like I said, we started, we were here at Antioch Brighton. We went out with the team to Waltham about, I think it was eight years ago or so now. We have three biological children um, who are seven, five, and four. We just, about two weeks ago, found out that um, our foster daughter, who's been with us for over a year, um, is going to be um, adopted. She'll be staying. So, I know. Christoph. Which, it means two things. We get to love her forever, but it also means that we're going to love her biological family forever. And we're going to get to know her mom, and her brothers, and her sisters, and it's going to be a sweet journey. So, we're really rejoicing in that. Um, we have a three-week-old little boy that just joined us about two weeks ago, um, straight from the hospital. Um, so we're overjoyed to be caring for him as well. Um, so we have five kids total. Um, our story, I'm going to share super quickly because I don't have a ton of time. Like, our story of how we got to where we are right now is just a very simple story of um, hearing God ask us to take the next step. The specific word of God that we felt like he was saying was, like, one step closer and we'd say, okay, yes, Lord. And we saw so many barriers that were in the way um, where we thought, you know, we thought we were on a journey towards adopting, but we thought it was going to be impossible for a number of reasons. We felt like God would say one step closer, and we'd say, okay, yes, Lord. And every wall started coming down. So now we're two and a half years in. Um, like I said, we thought we were going to be just adopting, uh, but God totally broke our hearts. The more we learned, the more we, we learned about the children um, that are in need, the families, where they come from. We started learning about the system that these children are a part of, which is, um, you might hear me say, DCF. That refers to the Department of Children and Families. It's the government agency that's responsible for caring for kids that are neglected or abused. Um, so, uh, so as God broke our heart and changed us, um, our story changed. Um, so now we've been fostering for about two and a half years. I think we have some pictures of, um, of the kids that, that have come through um, our home. We've had nine foster care placements um, that uh, have, have been in our home, um, some for a few weeks, some for a few months, um, a couple for a year or more. Um, you can just rotate right through them. And as I was praying um, last night, I was you know, sitting with our little guy, our three-week-old, and asking God, Lord, what do you want them to know? who you are and these children. I felt like I was saying, he just wants us to know how desperately he wants them, how he loves them so much. And it's through the church that he's going to embrace these children. So um, just wanted to share that really quickly. 
So as we jump in, um, one quick word. A lot of the scriptures that uh, I'll be referring to today, um, often they, they mention three groups of people. So we'll mention um, the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner or the stranger, which essentially what God is saying is people who are extremely vulnerable and in need, um, have desperate needs. And as we look through, um, you know, biblically, there's about 60 scriptures throughout the Old Testament alone that mention these three groups of people together and mention um, who God is in relationship to these people um, and how God feels about them. So let's dig into a few of these scriptures. Um, So Psalm 68, 5 and 6 says, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing. In Psalm 146, um, it says, The Lord watches over the foreigner, and he sustains the fatherless and the widow. There's more than 60 verses, and every single one of them is shouting the exact same thing. It's saying, saying, I love these people desperately, and I want to protect them. I want to sustain them. I'm going to care for them. I'm going to meet every single one of their needs. It's like God's heartbeat. You can just feel it in these scriptures, that these people are precious to him, that even though everyone else might forget or push them aside, God is saying, I will not forget them. But if that is who God is, then what is his plan? Like how, how is he actually going to see this through? How will he meet the physical needs of these people um, who have desperate need? And we find God's plan um, for meeting their needs in what is commonly referred to as the fields of the fatherless. It's a a part of scripture in Deuteronomy 24, but a little bit of cultural context before we dive into it. Um, uh, The people of God in this time period, um, they're living in an agricultural society. So when it's talking about the harvest, um, it's talking about their everything, their livelihood. They've spent their entire year pouring in for a harvest. So what God is really mentioning in these scriptures is he's asking of their resources, of everything that they have. Um, So let's dig right in. This is, this is God's plan for meeting their needs. So it says, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. And then here's the command. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you are slaves in Egypt, and that is why I command you to do this. So God is doing something um, in this scripture of setting up a system, a system in place where he will meet all of their needs. And you can see that he's going to meet the needs of people through the the community of God, through the people of God. And the first thing that you notice is that there's zero room for greed or being selfish in the scripture, that God is asking people to leave behind part of what they've worked for all year for people who have need. It'd be like the equivalent of us just not taking our full paycheck and just leaving some behind Um, because this is their livelihood, but they're not collecting it all. They're leaving it behind. And the second thing is, is that for people to have their needs met, 
they actually need to draw close to the people of God. That the people of God are opening up their fields, their homes, for people who have need. That people would come in and be satisfied. And for those of you that are familiar with the story of Naomi and Ruth, it was the fields of the fatherless that, that saved them. Because when they were widowed and they have nothing, they said, we need to go back to the people of God. So there was a proximity where they had to draw close to the people of God to have their needs met. And then in that story, they're ultimately redeemed and restored and God changes the whole outlook of their life, which is what God is trying to do. That when people draw close to the people of God, they have their needs met and then everything is changed. Which I think that's still what God is wanting to do today. That, that people who have need, if they would just know that they could just walk in these doors and have all of their needs met, we're going to wrap around them and love them and care for them, we would change everything if we were those people today. But then on top of opening their fields and their home um, to give, uh, there's another command that we find in Deuteronomy 14. It says, At the end of every third year, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, and the fatherless, and the widow who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So not only are they not collecting everything, they're also giving the entire tithe every third year to people who have need. So they're not collecting everything that's theirs. And then on top of that, every third year, the entire tithe would go to meeting the needs of the community. And both of those scriptures... Um, speak about God's blessing. They say that, do this so that God may bless the work of your hands. And the blessing to God's people was absolutely everything to them because they knew, they had seen their own history, that when the blessing of God was on them, that they were prosperous, they thrived, they were made into a great nation. But when the blessing of God was removed, there was captivity and bondage and strife. And they knew that having the blessing of God in their life was something that they desperately needed. So they would take, the God's people would take this extremely seriously, and so should should we. And then there's also some scriptures that speak about the fields of the fatherless, um, but more of a warning. So in Deuteronomy 27, 19, it says, Cursed is the one who perverts the justice that is due to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. God calls it justice. This is the justice that is due to them, that this is actually what's fair. He's saying, I've made a system This is what's fair. It belongs to them. Then in Proverbs 23, it says, Do not move an ancient boundary stone or or encroach on the fields of the fatherless, for their defender is strong, and he will take up their case against you. So God is saying, I have created a system where, where their needs will be met. I am their protector. I am their defender, and I am your God. And it is through the people of God that their needs will be met. And this was a really big ask, a really big command that God was giving them. But God, um, in his very character, is not going to ask them to do something that isn't going to pour out of the overflow of their heart. This is a huge commandment. But what is the motivation that they would just give so extravagantly? And we find the motivation right up above the command and right below the command. God gives the motivation two times. So right above the field of the fatherless, it says, Always remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. And that is why I have given you this command. And then after the whole fields of the fatherless command, at the bottom, he says it again. He says, Remember 
that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. It's the gospel. It's, it's their story. This is their story that they were slaves with no hope and no future. But God drew them out of slavery and gave them a glorious hope and made them into a great people, made them prosperous. And God is saying that you are my people and I've set you apart for something different. And it's still our story today. It's still our motivation today. That's what we sang about in that second song when we're saying like, for the cross, it has set us free. It has redeemed us. It has changed us that we had no hope. We had no future, that we were a slave to our own bondage. And it's still my story today. It's my motivation. When I walked through these doors 13 years ago, I was a slave to so many things that I could not get free of. But by the grace of God, somehow he set me free. He changed me. Broke bonds of addiction and things that I could not get free of by myself. But not only that, then God goes one step farther and he says, I've set you free so I can adopt you and make you a son. What? (laughs) This is our motivation today, that we are a son and a daughter of the king, that we had no hope and no future, and he set us free when we could do nothing. We could do nothing. This is still our motivation today. But then, even one step farther, God tells us that we're adopted, which is a past tense verb that means once and for all, we have been set free. All of the rights of the enemy have been terminated on our life, that we are free to be a son, free to be a daughter of the king. And he says that we can call him Abba Father, our precious daddy. And then Jesus calls us his brother, that we have one God. And then, if it can get even better, God calls us co-heirs, which means that all of the kingdom that belongs to God now belongs to us, the people of God, that along with Christ, we inherit the kingdom. If this isn't motivation, then what is? Oh my gosh. Lord. And then this amazing thing starts to happen because we are all part of God's family and he is our father and Christ is our brother. Then all of a sudden the DNA of the father starts to become our DNA. And who is he? The father to the fatherless, the defender of the widow. And the business of this kingdom that is our kingdom starts to become who we are. This is who we are. This is part of who God is, part of who he called us to be. But now it's not an ask or a command. It's just part of who we are because his love is burning in us. We've felt it over us and it's burning in us. And when we see need, we are totally different because the DNA of the father becomes part of just the fabric of who we are. And he is love. It's who he is, and it's the gospel that compels us. But what does the fields of the fathers mean for us today? Because we're not an agricultural society. We don't have fields that we're regularly harvesting. But the truth is that these commands that were given to us are still very relevant today because we all have resources. We all have time. We all have energy that's been given to us 
And what we choose to do with the things that God has given us, or what we choose to not do, is very significant. God's crystal clear about who he is and who he's calling us to be. The words that we see all throughout the Old Testament that God's using when he talks about our call are words like redeem and protect, sustain, uphold, restore, defend, rescue, shelter, over and over again, 60 times. He says, this is who I am, and this is who I've called you to be. They're powerful words. They're go words, action words. They're not passive. But when we fast forward to the New Testament, the language changes a little bit. So, um, actually quite a bit. In James 1.27, it says, Religion that, our, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're told that we should go and do like the man who had mercy on the stranger that he saw in need. In 1 John 3, we hear, If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? So now the action words in the New Testament have changed. We hear things like have mercy, serve the least of these, love, have compassion. These are still powerful words, but they're a little bit more unclear about what, what God is asking us to asking us to do. So I spent some time when I was preparing to speak really wrestling with this. Like, what do these New Testament scriptures really mean? God, what are you asking us to do? Um, and one night, and I was really wrestling with this thought. We're like, I, I don't, like, have mercy, have compassion, serve, love. They're big words, but they're vague. And I went to sleep with this kind of heavy on my heart. And in the middle of the night, the Lord woke me up with this one thought burning on my mind. I couldn't get out. I felt like I was hearing um, God say over and over again, saying, we think we are compassionate, but we are not. Like, Lord, what could this mean? We think we are compassionate, but we are not. If we are the church, like we, I've always imagined that we are the picture of compassion. So I got out of bed to really wrestle with this word, and I looked up the word compassion, and if you look at the root of the word compassion, if you break it down to the, the very core of its meaning, the beginning part of the word means together. And the middle and the ending part of the word both mean to suffer. So together, suffer. Or if you flip it, to suffer together. So there's something in the word compassion that you need to enter in. That suffering together, that there's, there's a, an aspect of carrying the suffering along with somebody who's hurting. And I started um, looking for a place in the Bible where Jesus was compassionate. And the first thing that popped in my mind was I knew there was a story where Jesus climbed off the boat and it says that he had compassion on the crowds. So I went and, and dug that one up. It's in Matthew 14. And I'm going to paraphrase it for you um, very quickly. So in that story, um, John the Baptist had just been beheaded. And it says that John's disciples buried his body and went to tell Jesus what happened. So they go to tell Jesus what happened. And when Jesus hears, his response is, I need to get alone. 
he says, I need to find a, a place of solitude, is what he says. Because Jesus was grieving. This was his friend that was just killed. Um, it was his, his cousin, his ministry partner. It was the person who would pave the way for his ministry that he had just lost. And Jesus was grieving. And he said, I need to be alone. I need to be with my father. So they get in a boat to cross the lake to get away from the crowds. But the crowds had heard what happened. Um, not heard what happened. They heard where he was going. And when he gets to the other side of the lake, um, the crowd had grown. And he climbs off the boat. He climbs off the boat, and he's looking at 5,000 people, 5,000 men and probably their families, so probably more like eight or 9,000 people. And remember, he is going to find a quiet place to grieve. And he comes off the boat, and he sees the people, and it says that he has compassion. He has compassion on them. Like they were, they were sheep without a shepherd. So on this day with this deep, deep need that he has, he comes off the boat and it says he healed every single person who was sick. And then he taught them many things. I don't know. It probably took days of, of sitting there. What does it look like to heal anyone who was sick in a crowd of eight or 9,000? For days, he healed them. He taught them. And then after all of that, it says that after it was finished, he, he didn't send them away because he said they'd been there too long and they'd be famished. So then he fed them all. This was probably, arguably, the second worst day of his life that we can find in Scripture. The first being the day that he was crucified. But this is, we can find a story where he had desperate need and wanted to be alone. And he put aside all of his needs and entered into their suffering. This is our picture of compassion. And I think so many times, well, actually, imagine this with me for just a moment, that if on that day Jesus came to the shores and saw the crowds and he felt compassion, like they were sheep without a shepherd, but when he climbed off the boat, he decided that he had too much hurt that day and that he sent them all away and went and found his quiet place. See, it wouldn't be compassion at all because compassionate feelings is different than compassionate action. And Jesus chose to enter into their suffering on that day. But I think that that's what we do so often, that we see people have need and we feel deeply compassionate, that our heart aches for them, but we do nothing. And I think that that's a very different thing than what Jesus was showing us in this scripture of what compassion looks like. For him, there was no selfishness. He put aside his needs. I heard some shocking statistics um, recently. I heard um, if one in every three American churches, if one in every three American churches had just one family that adopted one child, there'd be no more orphans in our country. We think we are compassionate but we're not. I feel like I hear Jesus saying that. And there are 50 million churches worldwide and about 150 million children in need of a family, which means that if each church had three families that adopted one child, we would solve the world's orphan crisis. 
there'd be none left. We think we are compassionate. There are 10,551 children living in the foster care system in our own state. And thousands of those children don't have a stable home. They bounce from home to home for a night or two or three nights because there's not enough homes that will care for kids long term. There's more. and These statistics are as of January. They do a, a census every six months. There are more than a thousand children in our own state that are in need of adoptive family right now. And many of them will never get a family. Many of them will grow up in the foster care system and never reunite with their biological family, never get adopted, and will be off into the world as adults with nobody. And the statistics for those kids are horrifying. We are compassionate, but we're not. And there are children sleeping in sleeping bags at DCF offices all over our state with all of their belongings in trash bags because there's no one that's willing to open their home for them. If truth be told, I feel like the church, capital C, big church, I feel like we're very good at talking about compassion. But when it comes time to actually make changes to our life, to change our days, our weeks, our years, to actually enter into the lives of people who need us, I fall short 99% of the time. We fall short. Because true compassion is always going to cost us something. There's a high cost of entering into the suffering. And our culture has pre-programmed us to run from pain and run from things that hurt. But that's not the example that Jesus gave us. And that's not who God has called us to be. It's going to cost us something to enter in. And we know that's true because... The compassion that Jesus showed to me and you cost him everything. It cost him his life. He hung on that cross for us because he wanted to enter into our suffering. It's going to cost us something to be truly compassionate. But why? Why are we so unwilling? was wrestling with that. This was a long night. I woke up and, why are we so unwilling, Lord? Why are we so unwilling? I feel like there's a lot of things that hold us back from being really compassionate. Um, You know, is it selfishness? I think that we are so much more selfish than we like to admit. I think we make our time such a huge idol that we hold our time so tightly. Um, I think that that we have a really bad habit of seeing need in people and blaming them for, for what their own need is. We see people, or we see whole groups of people, and we, we believe in our heart that they created the problem and that they own the problem, and we expect them to deal with it. 
we judge people before we ever hear their stories. We judge them and we refuse to enter into their suffering. We keep them at arm's distance. We keep suffering at arm's distance while we blame people for what they're going through. But I feel like the, the big one that God has been highlighting for me and for us is fear. I think we're so afraid. I think we're terrified. We're terrified of things we don't understand. And this is feels dark, Spirit, spiritual warfare. We're talking about abuse and pain, addiction, the, the opioids crisis that's causing a lot of this major issue that we're having in our state, that we're afraid, we don't understand it, and we don't enter in. There's been more pain in these last two and a half years than I ever thought I could experience as we've been welcoming kids in our home and entering into their suffering. But all of the pain is overshadowed by this overwhelming joy that God brings in our home because God is the father to the fatherless and he loves these children so much. So all the things that we are afraid of, God has been so intimate and so close. I mean, we've had children in our, that we've come to our home with bruises and cuts and scrapes and bites. We had one little girl who came who had a stab wound in her foot that was never healed and never stitched. And we had this one little girl, actually our first foster daughter, who came. Um, she had been left alone for the majority of her life in her crib. She was 11 months old. And she was left alone so long that she actually forgot how to cry. Because if you call out for someone long enough and nobody answers, then eventually you stop crying. She had zero language skills. These things are terrifying when we think about this. We had a little boy who was three years old who came to our house. And the first thing he did when he walked through the door of our home he went right over to the refrigerator and he opened up the fridge and he went, oh, there's food in here. He grabbed a bag of apples and he started eating and we went outside. He dropped the bag of apples in the sand and all the apples got covered. And I tried to take the apples and tell him that I was going to get some new ones. And he clung to them for dear life and he ate every single sandy apple. I don't think any of us will understand what it means what it feels like to be that hungry. These things can feel so scary. There was one little girl, she was four years old when she came, um, and we were trying to help her get comfortable, and we took out some beads, and we were doing some bracelets, stuff like that, and um, she stood up with a bowl of beads and tripped and dropped them all over the floor. And she ran to the corner of the room, and she hid and covered her face. And when I went to comfort her, she looked at me with terror in her eyes. And I realized that she thought I was going to hit her. (sighs) But all of this fear is a 
total lie that we don't need to buy into because God in every single one of those moments was so tangible in the room because he loves these children. He loves them so much. His heart is bursting for them. He's desperate for them. That little girl, when I realized what happened, I crawled up on the floor next to her. I apologized for anybody who'd ever hurt her and told her it's never going to happen in this house. And I kid you not, the tangible presence of God has never been so thick in a room because he loved her with more love than we ever could imagine. And we've always had every single thing we need. God has promised that as we pour ourselves out, he's going to give us every single thing we need. And that same little girl left our house three months later. And and when she was leaving, we said, you can take anything you want in our home. Anything is yours. And she said, you wouldn't let me take the Bible, would you? Yes, of course. Because she had something different. That no matter what her life looks like now, that nobody could ever take away from her. She'd experience something different. In every single one of those stories, we saw miraculous over and over and over again. And everywhere we go, this love of God, this light is just bursting out of us. Not because of who we are, but because the love that God has put in us is so different than what the world is used to seeing. That everywhere we go, the schools we bring these kids to, they're just amazed by the love and how it's different. The doctor's offices we go to are forever changed. The people we talk to. We've seen birth parents come to know Christ because, um, because they said that when we pray for them, it's the only real power they've ever experienced. Because God loves these people. These are his people. and he, He's desperate for them. If only we would just enter in. The social workers that come to our home, you know, feels like weekly. Um, the social workers that are in our home are forever changed. We've heard them say over and over again, they say, the love in your family is so different. But now, there's starting to be multiple Antioch families that are fostering, and even in multiple different DCF offices, and all the social workers are starting to connect the dots, and they're saying, these families have that same love. And now they're starting to wonder, okay, what is it about this church? The love in this church is so different but it's not because the families are, are similar. We don't have, we're, we're incredibly different than the families that you saw standing up here. But the DNA is the same. That God's love that's in us and bursting out of us is the same. And they're starting to realize that there's something different. But eventually they're going to realize that it has nothing to do with our church and has everything to do with our God. And when they realize that, everything is going to change. Everything is going to change just because we will put our needs aside and enter in and let the love of God that is in us come bursting out. 
God has placed a glorious light in you, in me, in us. I think there's more power in us than we're ever going to comprehend. It doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy. It's going to hurt. It's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us maybe everything. But God himself has promised that he's going to be in it with us. And that is more than enough. These are his children. These are his fields. The fields of the fatherless are his. And his heart is bursting for them. There's one scripture in Isaiah 58 that sums it up really well. So I'm just going to read the whole thing. It says, Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the, of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, to see the naked, to clothe them, clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then, if we do this, if we pour ourselves out, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then, God promises, when you call, the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs. He will satisfy our needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame and you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. And here's a, a future promise. God promises when we do this, he says, your people, that's us, will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations and you will be called the repairer of broken walls, the restorer of streets with dwellings. Okay, the band, come on up, please. To summarize that scripture, that scripture says so clearly, God promises over and over again. It says, God is the one who calls us to care for orphans and those who are vulnerable. God is the one who quickly answers when we have need as we're pouring ourselves out. God is the one who waters our life and sustains us when we are dry. God is the one who breaks the chains of injustice that are holding these children and their families. He is the one who sets their oppressed free. He is the one whose glory shines like the noonday sun out of our lives as we live compassionately. And God is the one who promises that we will see our cities and our nation healed and restored. As we respond, I think there's a few... um, few responses that if you're feeling stirred, um, 
think we'll have some people who can pray with you, but just come. If you're feeling stirred to come on up and receive some prayer, then, then don't wait. You can come on up at any point, but um, can you stand? Stand.